Craftsman, Episode 3. Dwayne. David. Craftsman, Episode 3. Made it through another one. Yeah. I like that guy more every time I watch him. Agreed. So, and I was joking with you while we were watching it. I feel like I should be taking notes <laughs> of what, not only the things that he's he's talking about, but every time he's naming off the name of the equipment that he's using and then also what year it was made. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty fascinating how old everything. There was one that was from 1866. 1866, yeah. And was that the Tenon machine? It was. Which he had mentioned in one of the other episodes. Yeah, episode two, I believe. Yeah, it was the thing that looked like if OSHA saw it, they would just sort of, (laughs) they would get upset. Yeah. Um, And then a uh, mortise Machine that was from um, the forties. Yeah, it was pretty modern, pretty new. Yeah, um, and then he was using a pedal-powered scroll saw. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if he said when that was from. I think he may have, but did it look like to you that it actually had a leather belt? Yeah, that connected the large uh, pulley to the small pulley, and even. The the arm that held the blade was wooden. Yeah. You know, that actually worked the scroll saw up and yeah. down. There was some like some metal or steel yeah, adjustable linkage mm-hmm. uh, that connected some things. But yeah, the actual arm was yeah. was wood. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that it's probably early nineteen hundreds or or yeah previous to that. Sure. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd have to agree with you there. Yeah. So just Again, like I could watch it with the sound off just to see the way everything is shot, but also there were some more shots of the shop and sort of the setting and everything in there. Um, And in this episode, he was talking about working on um, the mansion. The Carson mansion. Yes, that was, and Mr. Carson was the owner of the sawmill. In that town, is that correct? It is. Yeah. yeah. And it looked like it took up a sizable chunk of the coastline. Yes. Uh, in its heyday. Premium real estate there. Man. And it looks like, didn't he say that as far as Victorian architecture is concerned, that house isn't supposed to make sense because it's asymmetrical. Yeah. But they spared no expense and how they built everything out and they hired these designers that were top notch. Yeah, ahead of their time. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, they they overcame uh, that asymmetrical atrocity, uh, apparently, (laughs) um, by going over and above with quality and detail. Yeah. And they showed some shots from the inside that were... I, I've worked on some some higher end, ornate, ornate projects. Yeah. Um, but they didn't compare. No. To the amount of detail that's in the per square inch yeah. of of the interior of the house and the exterior. I had a a designer one time. We had a bunch of extra trim that we were putting in a skylight, and we asked her, you know, what 
what kind of uh, detail do you want in there? And she just said, put gobs of trim <laughs> in there. <laughs> and it, it top it, notch. No yeah, yeah. Yeah. It looks like they were a little more organized than gobs, but there was just stack upon stack upon yeah. stack of, of detail and it all flowed together it all went together none of it looked out of place right it just looked i don't know just prime like just beautiful it it looked like something you'd see sort of in a palace or like to me it's like what the interior of the titanic looked like (laughs) you know what i mean just just that really um tons of detail you can tell that whenever they built that house no one was like all right what's our Per square foot price, <laughs> because no. the the amount of detail and attention they're putting into these things would just make it, yeah, you know. How many, how many craftsmen do you think were assembled to put all of that together? Oh man, and what kind of timeline do you think it took to do that level of work? It wasn't one hundred and twenty days. No. Yeah, it had to take a, just the trim work alone, not foundation framing any of that. Just the trim work alone had to take. I, I don't. I don't even know. Well, they're not going to be using battery powered uh, Dewalt tools, multi tools, where they can just no. zip it off, or they can. Like, can you imagine the the amount of space in that house that would have been just set up for individual craftsmen with a bench where they could go back to where their, their saws were and their planes were to to work on this one little piece? Yeah, to then be able to go put it in. Yeah, and a lot of it looked hand carved. Yeah, and I I would assume that almost all of it was. My goodness! In that time period, yeah, you know, yeah, really exceptional. Um, and they started a, uh, a club there mm-hmm. in the fifties, um, geared towards preserving the house. Yes. Uh, and it was like, a, I guess just gentlemen only. And then at the time, yeah, yeah, it's since moved into full family. Right. Um, and so obviously they're paying dues and they're raising money, but they're doing an impeccable job of keeping that house. I mean, it looked like every square inch was painted brand new yeah. and as things need to be renewed, they're calling it a top of the line of craftsmen uh, for sure. Well, they had a, it, a gentleman that came in and picked up the item mm-hmm. was a, w- w- was part of the staff. Yeah. Full time. And he yeah. was there just to do, to do maintenance and upkeep yeah. on, on the building. Right. So it wasn't a, you know, we're going to have our gardener come and fix this. Like they had a a, a gentleman on staff who that was his sole purpose was preservation. Right. Which is impressive. Yeah. 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 He, uh, they, they replaced a, a sash, a window sash, uh, that that had gotten water damaged. Um, imagine being on the coast, we get quite a bit of rain in that area and it had got water in it and, and damaged it to a point where it couldn't be repaired. That they had to, to actually rebuild the the wood frame. Uh-huh. Um, he still used the glass. Yeah, uh, but they redid the sash. And I was noticing when they took it out that it had the the big chains. 
yeah. on it that went to the big counterweights that were inside the wall. Uh-huh. Um, so you could open the window up and it would actually, those counterweights would hold the weight. Right. It wasn't a friction fit um, right. like the ones are nowadays. It was, uh, you know, counterbalanced um, within the wall. And you don't, you don't see those hardly at all. No. Uh, anymore. Not, not, well, do you know any, I've, you and I both have worked for some, with some very high end companies that do windows. Yeah. And I haven't seen any that work like that. Other than, than historical preservation homes. No, yeah. no, none of the new, new style. Right. No. They're all a friction for the most part. And in that project where he is redoing the window and it's obviously this old school counterweight with chain. Yeah. He made the comment that that wood had been beveled back at 30 degrees to shed water. Yeah. And uh, commented about how that was pretty remarkable because nowadays they use like five degree. At best. Yeah. Yeah. Five degree. Yeah. Yeah. And he made the comment that the guys that did that so long ago, uh, he had a lot of admiration for them, that they would go to that sort of length to make sure that, yeah, you know, that um, level of detail. Well, and you and I have talked about it before too, but, you know, a hundred years ago, it wasn't unusual for a craftsman to say, how do I make this last way past my lifetime? Yeah. And it's easy now in this time period where you think I've seen buildings that are only 20 or 30 years old be torn down to, to make way for a, a new building. Right. And so it's easy to get in that mindset of like eh, 30 years, 50 years, maybe. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people out there too that are just like, if I can... If I can get to look good till I get paid, right? I'll be okay. Looks good from my house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the you know, well, the painter will, the painter will hide that. Mm-hmm. Or nobody's ever going to see this back in this corner, right? And they just the level of pride in your in your work just isn't there anymore. Where these yeah. guys, like obviously, this was a prestigious project, uh, even when they were building it. Yeah. Um, so the level of, of care that was put into the work was, was high. Yeah. Um, so th- the fact that it, it's still standing today, mm-hmm. uh, says something about it. Yeah. Yeah. In in my, um, trade, I've heard people say, uh, when it comes to f- fabrication, have you heard it? Um, a grinder and paint, Makes me the welder I ain't. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so they, you know, they it may lay down a certain way, and they're like, well, after it's ground and it's painted, it's fine. Yeah. You know, and and then there are other people um, that are, especially people, like, you know, a lot of times we don't use paint. We use patina, which is, not only really thin, it's almost transparent. You're basically staining the metal. Yeah. So there's nowhere to hide. If it doesn't look good when you first make it, it will look worse <laughs> after you highlight it with yeah. patina 
that yeah. can get into every nook and crevice and show like you know all these yeah. uh, imperfections it's like stain grade woodwork right you can yes. see sanding swirls or yes. you can see you know waviness or you can see uh, everything is amplified yes once you get the finish on right and so you know obviously this is coming from a time whenever uh, craftsmen uh, didn't rely on just slapping paint on it or caulking or, you yeah. know, all those other things that people use to sort of. Yeah. Um, the saying in, in carpentry is you do your best and caulk the rest. Right. And yeah. That, that's the same as, yeah. as, as the grinder, but it, terrible mindset. Well, it be, it becomes a very wishy-washy line, you know, um, because if you see an accomplished painter, they can hide a lot of things. And you know how it is in the construction world. Like, it's a little bit of hot potato. Yeah. Somebody's like, eh, yeah, but I can, it's good enough to hand to the next guy. And then the next guy's like, man, he's always leaving me a mess. And now I'm going to have, you know, Yeah. I bid this job assuming that everybody that worked on it owns a level, a square, and a plumb bob. And apparently no one does. And so now I've got to do all this work to make it look straight. But nobody is like, hey, would you like an extra $5,000? <laughs> but, but you're doing all this extra work. Yeah. You know, so also in the craftsman world, the way you leave your section of the job ties into the respect that you have from your other craftsmen. Very much so. You know? You're not yeah. just leaving someone a hot mess that they then have to make look decent. Yeah. Um, and as a trim carpenter, I'm sure you can really appreciate a good framer and a bad framer. Very much so. Good yeah. drywall guy and a bad oh, drywall my guy. Goodness. Yeah. 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 And I've had painters come to me too and be like, man, like we usually get like a gallon or two of Bondo for a <laughs> yeah. job and, and we don't have to on that. Like it, mm -hmm. they're, it's noticed right uh by the other trades around you right that they don't have to you know goop it up right in order to make it look like something but what's interesting and not in every case but oftentimes um the person who is generating the cash flow and who is picking who is going to be on the next job is not motivated by how good you did at your job but how fast you did it so sometimes it encourages this um, breed of craftsmen, craftsperson, whatever you want to call them. I don't think they should be called that. Uh, that is just turn and burn, get it done, get it yeah. out, get it, you know. Um, yeah. And there's not a lot of mutual respect for that person, but they seem to always get the jobs. They do. and But, well, it's yes and no. Because it seems the the level of quality on the job kind of runs through the middle of all the trades. Yeah. So if you have a high-end um, fabricator or high-end trim carpenter, you get a higher-end painter. Mm -hmm. you, know, you should. Or a higher-end drywall yeah. guy. Or, a, you know, the you don't get the bottom of the barrel. You get somebody who can handle the complexities of the job yeah, and make it, make it presentable to the next trade in line. 
Right. And all of that kind of builds upon the final product that you present to the owner. And the savvy builders know that. They do. You they know. Do. Yeah. Um, there are jobs where it's a, a hodgepodge of yeah. whoever was available. Whoever answered the phone. Yeah. Who can yeah. get it done in, in the ridiculous timeline they've set. And some guys, you know, will have a window of opportunity and their quality doesn't quite fit, but their mm-hmm. time frame does. And so they yeah. get the job. Yeah. And everybody just has to kind of pitch in around them to, yeah. to make it presentable. But, and I'm sure you saw this in places that you've worked and the hometown kind of where I grew up and started working. Um, there were only three or four trim guys, only three or four paint guys. Yeah. And we all knew each other because we were on a job and we knew that in another month or so we were going to see each other again. We didn't necessarily know what job, but we all sort of traveled almost in a pack. One of us would get there a month before the other one, but then the other guy and people are like, well, do you guys know each other? Do you network? And we're like, no, we just usually wind up on the same jobs because we um, have uh, OCD, (laughs) (laughs) you know? uh, And so, and so, know certain builders have their crew of guys and right uh, they kind of alternate through mm-hmm. you know different builders the, the guys do so yeah well this house that they were working on i i would love to know that like did did the guys that work on this house for however long they worked on it you know i wonder if they they worked on this mansion and then they wound up working on this mansion the next town over or I'm sure they you know did. What I mean? Yeah. Because back then there wasn't, you know, I'm sure the market wasn't flooded with craftsmen. Right. And, you know, there had to be a few master craftsmen mm-hmm. who taught yeah, other craftsmen. So all yeah. of them either came up at the same time or, or were taught by the same master or, you know, right. they were all, they all had to know each other. Yeah. Especially by the end of the job, I'm sure they all knew. Yeah. A lot about each other. They would have to. Yeah. And uh, just like in in any trade, the the cream of the crop, you know, rises to the top. Mm -hmm. So the the higher end guys probably went on to the next high end mansion and the the lower end guys probably went somewhere else. Right. It. I don't know. But there was. I can't fathom being on a job like that where every inch of the wall is covered with a detail. Yeah. Carving. Yeah. The, the trend nowadays is to, you know, simple white, flat, plain, um, to the painted black or painted white. Uh And that's how it is. And this house had some, some stuff was painted. Some stuff was stained. There were, there were different, species of wood they said from all parts of the world uh-huh. Uh-huh. that were brought in for this particular home yeah and in a day before box stores where you could just walk in and bring something off the shelf that no. meant that months and months in advance there are orders placed yeah. shipments that arrive yeah. and you know they weren't 
they weren't ordering molding that was already like pre-cut lakes. And, no. I mean, it was just lumber yeah. that arrived from, I'm making this up, but Africa yeah. or from Asia or, you know, and this was the material they were going to use for this particular part of the room and to make these, yeah. you know. Raw material. Yeah. Those either brought there on a ship or a barge. Yeah. Maybe floated in mm-hmm. from up the coast, down the coast. I don't know it, yeah. how it got there, but yeah. It was just a totally different approach to uh, to building something. And like you said, I, I really wonder how long that took to build. Yeah. What a time to be involved, though. Yeah. Yeah. I always put myself in that. Like, what would it be like to be have your, your tool bags on and be in the middle of that? Mm-hmm. To have your fingerprints on it. Yeah. And then all through time, there's this march of craftsmen that are brought in to renew something or to yeah. to redo something. You heard him make a reference. You know, they went in, they took this window out so that they could redo the sash. And they observed that there were machine nails that were holding in some of that trim. And he made the comment. He said, we'll leave that for the next craftsman to see. Yeah. Because he knew that... Um, it's sort of like a witness mark. It helps somebody understand why is this slightly different or how is this, yeah. you know, um, he knew right off that's been touched in the last 50 years because that that's when that nail kind of became prevalent. Yeah. So it was yeah, like the a pneumatic gun yeah. or, or whatever that was used to, yeah. to drive that. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, depending on how long that house lasts, which it looks like it's doing a good job of, plowing right into the future very much there's going to be someone after eric and someone after that guy and someone after that guy that works on that house and so you get this you know i've talked to you about um it's alchemy yeah yeah it's this assemblage of things that aren't necessarily worth that much but then when you have that much time effort and energy and upkeep put into it it becomes this bigger grander thing and i know that there's a um a saying for that what is it um the whole is greater than the sum of the parts yeah you know but it's it's different when it's craftsmanship to me you know and you see this timeline through history of 100 years 150 years right um you know and eric refers to sort of the spirit of that yeah, that, keeping that keeping some original parts in it to maintain the spirit. Yeah, they didn't yeah. go in there with a glass tool and just break that glass out. Yeah, and put a new like. Yeah, they didn't take measurements; just go build a new one. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a big deal that they kept the original glass, and they yeah. were very careful when they were taking it out. Absolutely, you know all those things to preserve it. Yeah. So, I I love that they're not trying to, as the trend is improve it or make it better. Yeah. Uh, like you're trying to keep it original. Right. The original was so good that they, they've moved to, to preservation mm-hmm. rather than improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and not that there's a lot of places to improve on it. Right. But the, the fact that they're preserving what was done originally. Right. Uh, really says something to me 
that that uh, that that means enough uh-huh. that it's worth hanging on to and saving and preserving for others to enjoy, for others to see, for others to experience, uh, to see what was in, in, in someone's mind way back then that they brought, to, brought together and built. I don't know. It, it, it speaks to something inside of me that that's bigger than, than any, anything else. Do you do you think that there are some people that um, obviously respond to things like that? That um, when I see an old building with all the history to it, there are some people that are like, wow, that's fascinating. And it, it's almost like they want to close their eyes and try and imagine everything that it's imbued with and all the people that have touched it. Yeah. And other people it doesn't really mean anything more to them than a pile of firewood. Yes. And is that a, is that something you're born with? Is that developed? Um, because I, I honestly think that there are some people that I just don't, I don't know how much history you could show them and how much you try and tell them the story of it. They still, it just doesn't really resonate with them. And they're like, eh, you know, and the reason I ask is because I don't know a serious craftsman, craftsperson, craftswoman that doesn't have that thing in their brain that makes them obsessed with old things and all of the story behind it and the things that had to come together to make it work. Yeah. It, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. And maybe it is possible, you know, maybe somebody can just, um, do it without that part of their brain active. But that seems to be a through line for a lot of um, craftspeople is that they're, in a sense of the word, romantics, that they think about all the things that were tied up in um, not only an old building, because maybe you're not doing restoration, but like if you're building a thing for a person, you get into the psychology of that person and the places they've traveled and the things they've done and the things that they like. And you, you all those come together in it, the alchemy. Yeah. I think, I think it could go either way. I think there's more, more craftsmen that, that I've met who have that tie to the history and the originality of, of what they're doing. But there's some out there who, for some strange reason, have some insane talent in, like a savant. Yeah, yeah. In creating or recreating mm-hmm. um, whatever the craft uh, that that they're in, but it doesn't. It comes so naturally and so easily that they don't have that tie. That it's just something they do because it it's easy, right? Like an athlete. Like a, a super athlete, athlete. Yeah. It, you know, it, it just comes easy and they're just, they're at home in, in whatever they're doing, but they don't feel, and maybe because they're not, <laughs> because they're not suffering in the learning of it. Uh-huh. I think a lot of that appreciation for the past comes in the suffering of, 
of learning a hundred percent for me those older methods or or materials or, or whatever goes into the job that that gives you an appreciation for those that came before you yeah but if it comes naturally there's not that that time investment uh-huh. in the appreciation of what goes into creating whatever you're creating I, I'm chuckling to myself because whenever you made the reference of a born athlete, I I don't know what to Google to to find this, but I heard a um, a study that was done by a university that was trying to figure out like professional athletes. I think they used the example of tennis players. Yeah. Um, are they? Do they just have a gift, or do they work harder, or like what is it that makes them? whatever it is, or is it the fact that they're sponsored and they have the right nutrition and they have the best racket and the best shoes and everything to test this? They, they took some very accomplished tennis players like at whatever level. I don't know. Not professional. Yeah. And they put them against a professional tennis player, not even top tier, but like a professional tennis player. Yeah. And they gave them a frying pan in place of the tennis racket, and they beat them with a frying pan. Really? Yeah. Now, I don't know if it was cast iron or what, but still, it's a frying pan. And that's a testament to this person is not just a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) They literally have a frying pan. Yeah. And they're beating this accomplished player. So, yeah, there are some people that, I mean, can you imagine how much harder you have to work to accomplish this thing? Yeah. Limited like that. Yeah. And they pull it off. And so, yeah, I, th- I think there are definitely some savants out there that just maybe they're unencumbered by all of the noise of thinking about those things and whatever. I know I am not gifted like that. I'm not either. I get super into all of the things and the parts and the what why did they do this or why was it done this way or you know um and so yeah i i don't know how to switch that off i don't either when i was when i was in high school um one of my best friends and i uh would team rope together Uh He was a header and I was a healer. And we would practice for hours and hours and hours to try and get better. And his little brother, we were probably 16, 17. His little brother was probably 13 or 14. Uh, Skater kid. Just spent all his time on a skateboard. He could come out there in, you know, his his vans and his shorts and he could climb on a horse, and he could outrope both of us. Frustrating, isn't it? It didn't matter if he was yeah. if he was heading or, or healing or whatever, but he yeah. could just show up, not warm up, mm-hmm. not practice, and just whoop us. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And not care uh-huh. either way about it. Yeah. You know, he would laugh it off and then go back to skating and just leave us mad. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I've seen craftsmen like that too. Like just, you know, a drywaller will come up and be like, hey, if you cut this miter a little different or if you did this and you're like, how 
how how did you know that? And he's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, like uh, blows your mind. Yeah. Well, I've heard people talk about pool players. My grandfather was a pool player. Uh, he was a farmer, but he would go to the pool hall and uh, play pool, and he was apparently very accomplished at it. Yeah. And um, even thought about changing careers at one point because of it. And um, apparently he was talented at being able to basically do geometry, yeah. you know, in his head, uh, accounting for English on the ball and contact uh-huh. and the table and all of those sort of things. And, um, yeah, I guess there is just something about it. And do you think it makes them a better craftsman? Going back to a craftsman, do you think that someone who's like a savant, that they're better for it? Like, are they are they able to do it without distraction and static and noise and all sorts of things? For a, for a period of time, yes. But I don't think there's that that long-term commitment to it. Do you think they do it for 40 years? You know what I mean? Or I do they find something else shiny? Uh, and, yeah, I, yeah, I think it doesn't hold their interest. Yeah. And it doesn't hold that that place in their heart, I yeah. guess, uh, the drive hard one knowledge and information yeah. and yeah, that and, the the fascination with it. Uh-huh. Like I still get, I still get a fascination with woodwork uh-huh. of seeing, seeing something done. Um, in the last episode we watched Eric just pick up a hand plane and square yeah. off a rounded corner with a flat, plane but he did it like like it was nothing like yeah. it was like that's what he was you know born to do i would have put a flat spot right where the plane or i would have so. i would have too <laughs> yeah but he but seeing stuff like that just i still find that amazing yeah and it, it captures my attention even after all this time i've used planes years mm-hmm but seeing that stuff, I'm still like, wow, look at, you see what he did there? I, I know that that struck your interest because it was only a few days later. You sent me a photograph <laughs> where you had used a plane. And uh, what were you doing there? Were you leveling two pieces? What was that inside a house? In I your- had I had two separate pieces I was putting together yeah. to frame out a window. And um, one mid piece was, was a little bit thicker than than the top piece. So rather than sit there for hours with a sander. Right. I took a block plane and, and just planed it down. Just to be clear, you get paid by the hour, right? <laughs> I do. But there was something inside you that was like, wait a minute, I've got the right tool for this. Yeah. And you're able to do it more efficiently and then also have the satisfaction of using that that tool that's oh. several hundred years old. Yeah. And, and that's where... Like the savant, maybe because they're not emotionally attached to it, they're just like, I get paid by the hour. I got a palm sander with four thousand grit. <laughs> yeah. I could, I could make half a day out of this. Yeah. But the person that's passionate about it, it is the kind that will look at you and be like, Hold on, I got something in my truck. Yeah. And like run off and yeah. then come back. You know. That block plane comes out of my my bag probably four or five times a year. Yeah. At most right but at that point i was like it's perfect yeah that's what i need yeah 
And that's, that's maybe that's where the passion makes the difference. I think so. Is this sort of um, obsession with not only are you doing the job right, are you using like the right tool to yeah. accomplish it in the most efficient way? Because you get this reward from doing that. When if you were just looking at it mathematically, you were like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. I, it, I might as well just do it the slowest way I can. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think there's a big difference there. Yeah. Well, in... See, I don't think... Sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. I don't think the savant would have enjoyed that process either. No. I, I don't see them getting any any satisfaction out of out of using the tool, out of getting the job done in the manner that it was done, or out of doing it correctly or quickly. Uh-huh. They would have just done whatever they would have done, and it would have been minimal effort. Minimal effort. That's uh, yeah, I agree with that, and that. You and I have both seen people that are um, maybe exceptionally talented, but not passionate. Mm-hmm. They are looking for what is minimal effort. Oftentimes, yeah. it, it, well, I, I think I've mentioned this to you. Whenever you see a born athlete that's just like amazing and they never really had to try, I think that sets the bar for them in their mind of. I should be able to receive this reward and this much praise for this much effort. Yeah. And it, if they if they continue in that pattern through the rest of their life, they start to become frustrated because they will try and do something and they will put minimal effort in. And if they don't get maximum praise, they're like, well, I'm just not good at that. And you know what I mean? That, like That's true, especially in, in retirement yeah. <laughs> for those athletes. Yeah. Because they're like, yeah, I, I tried this regular work thing y'all are doing, yeah. and that ain't for me. Right, right. Or everybody has that stereotypical, like, the guy who was the most gifted athlete in high school is now maybe not so successful in his small town. Yeah. Because... He was sort of like, man, I used to just wake up like five minutes before school, <laughs> roll in there, win the game, get all this praise. And I'm putting in the same amount of effort yeah, as I did in high school, but yet I'm not being rewarded at the age of 45. Life is so unfair. Right, right. Whenever there were other people in high school that were not gifted athletes that had to work really hard just to even be on the team. Yeah. And somehow their bar was set of, all right, if I want to even be allowed to participate, I need to work this hard. Yeah. And if they continue that for the rest of their life, they're going to reap rewards that maybe that, that gifted athlete or that savant mm-hmm. um, it remains elusive because they're just like, well, I'm doing everything I was doing when I was at my peak. Right. So, you know what I mean? I I don't know. I Thinking through it, I do think it's a disadvantage to be a gifted craftsperson. 
If you're looking for a long-term in that, career. In that craftsman area. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you may be able to blow in and do great work and, and whatever, but are you going to be here in five years? Are you going to be here in 10 years? Or are you going to get a, a job from your brother-in-law who's like, hey, you ought to come to this company because right. I don't do anything and I make <laughs> this much money. You know, and that guy abandons what could be a really promising career as a craftsman. Yeah. Because he's so talented. And just sort of drifts in and out. Maybe only comes back to it when he's just like, well, I'm in between jobs. Yeah. No, I think that's true. It And it, there's a, a saying of, if you're not the man who knows what, a thousand different kicks, uh-huh. but the man who's practiced one kick a thousand times. Right. The same thing with the craftsman. Like they've, they've practiced whatever move they're doing a thousand times. Yeah. So they're, they know the ins and outs. They know what to do when a hardship shows up in the middle of it. When something doesn't work out exactly to plan, they know how to handle that to pivot. That's huge. And and to make it work, you know, regardless. Yeah. And not just grind to a halt. Yeah. I mean, Oh, this um, is hard. I'm gonna go do something else. Yeah. Where that, I know we're beating a dead horse here, but that that's a vaunt doesn't have that um, grit, that grit to push through. Yeah. In those times of, of when there's a hill, when it's not always a valley. Right. You know, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And and, and I'm sure it happens to very um, like, it sounds like I'm picking on uh, natural born athletes, but there are also like natural born, like, people in math you know everybody knows that one kid that when they were like in fourth grade used to go to high school to take math and you're like (laughs) what you know yeah and then um you know it's up to them whether or not they they take that and really push it as they grow sure or do they just say to themselves well i should be able to put in minimal effort and be ahead of everyone else yeah and and if that doesn't continue then i become frustrated with life yeah, no, there's there's all kinds of, of varying levels of that. Yeah. You know, people look at uh I'm going to I'm going to go back a little bit, but Michael Jordan, like, yeah. oh, he it looked so easy for him. Yeah. But when you when you uh look at the facts and and how he trained and how he practiced, like he was a hard ass in practice. And he was there before everyone he pushed else. Pushed everybody, and he was there after everyone else. And yeah. yeah, he was he was hard on everyone because he wanted them to be just as good as he was. And it it seemed like for such a famous person, he was a bit tortured, like he was hard on himself. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, sounds I, like a craftsman to me, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, because. Uh, wasn't he, uh, is this just folklore or not, but wasn't he like kicked off of his high school team or junior high team, basketball team, because he wasn't good enough? And that like really put the, put galvanized the him yeah. of, okay, well, I'm going to show you. And apparently, was it at, it was some sort of award that he was given. Maybe it was the Hall of Fame or something. And instead of standing up there and being like, I would like to thank everybody, he read a list of people and he was like, they all didn't believe in me. Oh, really? Yeah, he was angry. Oh, I didn't know that. He was angry. All this time later, you could tell that he just bundled that all up, and he was like, well, 
I'm just going to pull this out and go through my little deck of cards every time I don't have motivation or every time I feel like I'm not working hard enough. Uh, yeah, apparently he harbored a lot of, um, that's interesting. I'm not saying it's a great way to live your life. Um, but, but I would be lying if I said that, um, there's a lot of, um, angst or a lot of, um, motivation to do my best work based on, um, not feeling adequate in the past. Yeah. Well, we, we all have whatever tortures us and drives us. Yeah. You know, whether it's inadequacy or whether it's, you know, you didn't get hugged enough as a kid or, right. Or, you know, you, or a passion, like there's so many things that can motivate you and drive you. Yeah. Um, good or bad. Yeah. You know, it, a, a drive is a drive. Right. And if it, if it causes you to put in the time and put in the effort and to, to Uber focus on whatever that passion is, you're, you're going to get somewhere. Yeah. For that. So, I, uh, I'm fascinated by people who, uh, take something to the nth degree, right? And, um, I have a, uh, somebody that I've known for a long time who's like a, a brother to me, um, Rob Sykes, who is a, a bodybuilder. Yeah. Um, who's much more than that though. Oh yeah. That's his... That that's one facet to to what he is and what he does. Yeah, um, he's also an accomplished businessman. Um, uh, has a whole line of like um, uh, food products based on the keto diet. Yeah, um, and is accomplished um, podcaster. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the fascinating thing about bodybuilding there's a there's a few things about it um and he's he's a a professional bodybuilder and has won the the top of several different classes he's the best in the world in this one division one is um when you see a bodybuilder it's easy to dismiss them as well that's just a lunkhead um he just happens to be gifted at you know, picking up heavy things and putting it down. <laughs> right. And that's that's so not true because a lot of these guys have very high level um, knowledge and understanding of nutrition and body and, uh, you know, kinesiology. Yeah. But what you're looking at is someone who has a response to injury. So when you look at somebody that has um, a developed muscle, that that's basically scar tissue. Yeah. It, that is self-torture. That is a representation of stress and strain repeated for years and decades. Yeah. So there's something interesting in the psychology of a person that does that. Or, I mean, you could even say powerlifting. Anybody that has that, you know, bodybuilding is, is, is another thing because you have to build all of that. And then you literally have to be like almost on death's doorstep. <laughs> to go to competition. Yeah. You know, those guys, they look like the epitome of health, but they're like, they're struggling at that point because they have systematically brought themselves to 
hardly any body fat and they're dehydrated and all sorts of things. So anyway, I say all that to say those guys aren't just like gifted athletes. You're looking at this response to injury that's happened for decades. Yeah. And so you and I both, I'm sure know growing up, um, this guy walks into the weight room and he's able to put on like three big wheels on both sides and just sit there and rip out 10 reps. And you're like, what? he doesn't even work out. That's not fair. You know, well, he's never going to be a bodybuilder though, because he's not willing to do that for 10 years straight, you know, and, and all the other things that come with it. Right. Wake up at 3am to train and, you know, do it two or three times a day. Right. And so again, going back to the craftsman, like if you see an accomplished craftsman, um, I think that ability to pivot, the ability to solve and pro- problem solve, um, constantly seeking out new ways to accomplish something and staying up on new technologies, but also discovering old technologies that they found in a book somewhere yeah. and bringing that back and, and making a tool that they're like, I saw this tool, so I made this. and It's mm-hmm. a special upsetter that's made to set a hot rivet. You know, in my case, like you dig into these old books. Sure that's the sort of thing that really gets you to the next level of, so what if you're good? But are you doing it day in and day out for five years, right. 10 years, 15 years, 20 right. years, 30 years? You know, um, so when when you see a, a, a craftsman, even if they're, um, uh, they, they may look pretty nondescript, their brain and their body and their hands are <laughs> filled with, response to injury and scar tissue and all of these things that come yeah. along with the struggle. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's just it. They will make it look easy. Doesn't mean it is. No, no, that, that appearance is, is something. Hmm. Yeah. Looking back at the, at the old ways, I, not only in woodwork, but in, in metalwork. Like, uh, if you look back at, at blacksmiths and, oh gosh, way back when, uh-huh. when they had, when they were working at a stable because they could make a horseshoe. Like that was, that was one of their main things or make a, yeah. a wagon wheel or a uh, forge welding was a, was a yeah. big part of that. Yeah. Extremely old technology. Uh-huh. Fast forward to now, if you look at a knife that sells for top dollar, it's probably Damascus. Yeah. Damascus is made by forge welding. Yeah. The same technology they use to make wagon wheels. Yeah. To come across the prairie is uh-huh. now, you know, top ev- of the line. Everyone had a wagon. Yeah. You know, ev- they all had wheels on them. Mm uh-huh. hmm. Blacksmith had to mm-hmm. had to keep those up and running, mm-hmm. and now highest end yeah thing that you can make is forge welding. Yeah, it, it comes full circle. Mm-hmm. Eric, you know, in Mesopotamia, he said we were mm-hmm. barely out of caves. There's evidence of mortise and tenon joinery, and now if you have the highest of high end woodwork done. It harkens back. All the way back. Yeah. That is fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. But we're we're paying a premium now for 
these things that are old. Yeah, but the but the technology is like there's a simplicity to the technology. Yeah. It was the best they had and it was the best they had because it worked and because it lasted. And conveniences and you know fat timelines, you know, doing it the fastest has turned out to be not the best. Yeah, certainly. Not not for long term uh, no. but also for people we've talked about this that as you um change your socioeconomic standing yeah there are certain things where you think well i'm doing this well so i want to have this now yeah um and that goes so far until there's no new thing that you can buy uh, and then the next level becomes an experience. Yeah. And so it becomes um, where you vacation or who you have dinner with. Yeah. Or what sort of good can I do uh, in my community mm-hmm. or for someone who needs it? That becomes like the next frontier of a pursuit. And so I think oftentimes, you know, a lot of the craftsmen work that's done is for people that have they've already bought the newest cars they've already have boats they have all these things and now what they want is an experience not just this item but knowing that that represents 10 15 20 hours a thousand hours of this other person's life yeah where they were like i do this well and that's part of what they're purchasing is knowing that they're they're, they're getting this that there's an investment yeah and, and there's another person who has put their time effort and energy into it yeah. um but yeah you're right we we've come several thousand years and now we put a premium on things that are a couple thousand years old <laughs> and and that's where uh craftsmen have seemed to found their niche yeah. because you cannot underbid um someone who will work for a dollar a day. You cannot work faster or more efficiently than a robot. Yeah. And so what, what is the thing that you do that sets you apart? Well, what's the, what's the scarcity? Yeah. You know, you can get things made on an assembly line Yeah, all day long. You can get things made out of cheap materials all day long. Right. What can you not buy off Amazon? Right. And experience. Yeah. You know, a dedication right to a craft. Like that that's not available. Can't mm-hmm. put it in my cart. Yeah. Yeah. Or or be able to look that that singular person in the eye. Yeah. You know, and have a conversation about it and have them genuinely be excited and say, Oh yeah, this was man, I, whenever I got to this part I wasn't sure what I was gonna do. So it took a while, but we wound up having to build these four things that you'll never see they're in my shop we're gonna we're gonna put them in the scrap bin now but it was a special fixture that just held it just right yeah so we could get that last rivet in and there's no other way that we could figure to do it i've made phone calls to people in the country outside of the country and everybody's (laughs) like you're gonna have to build this who's he what's it Uh uh-huh you know they like that they do they do that's one of the biggest things they'll share with People when they friends, yeah. w- when they show this whatever it is to them, yeah, 
Uh, yeah, this is this is a great staircase, but uh, let me tell you what happened. A- and that's, everyone's drawn into that. The story, the experience. Yeah, they'll look at it and be like, yeah, that's nice. Mm-hmm. But then they'll start telling the story about how it was made or what went into it or, you know, the guy only has nine fingers now because of this. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And when they tell their friends, they're like, this nine-fingered fellow made right. this thing. right. And it makes the rounds. It does. Well, I think when you look at somebody like Eric, I wonder how many people have a story of Eric. They might uh, not even know his name. Yeah. But they're like, this guy all in black. <laughs> <laughs> you know, smoking a pipe. Yeah. Driving a nondescript white van. Which I will bring up. Third episode is the first time I've seen any sort of logo on his van. I Yes. Yes. I think that's I, new. It is. Yeah. And it wasn't big. It wasn't a wrap. It wasn't diagonal across the door. No. It was like three or four inches high, <laughs> lettering, and like two or three blocks high. Yeah. And it was something like craftsman preserving heritage or I, I can't remember. Uh, I don't I don't yeah. remember the exact wording, but yeah. But before this it just looked like a like a nondescript white van. It did. Not a new van. No. Still not a new van. <laughs> it just put put lettering on it, dress that baby up. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's it's the story and it's that that whole thing. And I think that you don't get that same story and you don't get that same longevity of a craftsman if they're not passionate. No. Definitely not. The trade off though is oftentimes that passionate craftsman. Uh, they're, they're encumbered by all of this in their head and trying to figure out how they fit into it. And you know what I mean? I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Certainly. But no free lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a trade off to all of it. And yeah, it's, you know, the tortured craftsman, like there, there's, there's stories everywhere about it, but it, once again, that's part of the story. Right. Right. That's part of it. It lends to it. We should talk about, and I would need to read up on it and you would have to as well. So that, um, I, I won't leave out a key detail as I'm prone to do, um, about the Bowie knife and James black, the original, blacksmith who forged that because his wasn't the happiest story no um no very tortured it it was he uh, yeah rough all the things rough points in his life yeah um beyond the fame of the buoy which didn't come till well after his death i was about to say did he even reap any of that i think it he didn't even know in his lifetime, he had no idea that he would become uh, famous. No. Absolutely not. Yeah. We'll revisit that at some point. Yeah. I think it would be a good story to dive into. Probably an excuse to read some things on my um, holiday vacation. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, is that where we leave it? This, uh, I think it is for now. Okay. I think right. we've covered the, the stuff and the things in this episode at least. Yeah. Sorry for the rabbit trail, but um, 
kind of obsessed with what makes a craftsman a craftsman. We so. we both dived in. So. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, till next time. Till next time.